Welcome to the George Lynch Hunting Podcast, brought to you by Legendary Gear, the game call company that's legend by design. Well, folks, this week I have a very, very close uh, dear guest to me. Um, he's a, been a close friend for years, and I consider one of the best turkey killers walking around the face of the earth. Um, we have from New York State, Jason Pollock. Jason, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good, George, and yourself? Buddy, I am so good I'd give $5 for a headache. <laughs> yeah, that's a bunch of crap, huh? <laughs> no, Jason, um, Jason has been a good friend, dear friend of mine. We met, actually met years ago before even uh, our paths crossed with the outdoor group. Uh, I think uh, I went up to Northern Clare, Michigan, up to the Jay's Sporting Goods. I was up there with uh, my company at the time, and you were there representing uh, the outdoor group. I think it was you and Megan. Yes, we were. Wow. We were up there with, uh, they had a, uh, they had released a new waterfowl call, and we went up there and were working the show at Jay's. Jay's Sporting Goods, I believe it was. Yep, Jay's. Yep, that was our first time we met, and then our paths crossed again. Then when I came with, finally we sold our company to the Outdoor Group in 2016. I got, uh, you know, we had some ups and downs, but I'll definitely tell you one of the ups is some of the friendships that I made and some of the people that we got to become my considered lifelong friends. And Jason Pollock, you're, you and your family are one of those. I've been up there and spent a lot of time with you. I spent time with you at your home. I spent time with you out in the field. And your family's all first class from your sons, your daughters, your wife. I don't know how in the heck you got so lucky, but you are definitely a great outdoorsman. We've worked quite a few shows together. And, you know, um, you've got, I'm not going to get into it, but you've got a lot of titles and you've got a lot of prestige that you've earned on the turkey stand and in the turkey world. And I'd like to just, if you could, for our listeners, just give a, synopsis how you started and and uh i'm sure you whether it was hunting first but what got you into the calling competition well i started turkey hunting when i was very young so at uh in new york state when turkey season was open you had to be 14 years old to actually hunt so i started uh i've always found it interesting to be able to call the game whether it's turkeys or deer or waterfowl but being able to communicate with them i just always found an interest in it so when I was about 11 years old, I was interested in the turkey side of it. So I started calling for turkeys and I used an old push-pull box call and got them to respond. And I thought that was really cool. And as I got a little older, I started, you know, dabbling in other different kinds of calls with the box calls, frictions and that stuff. But before I was actually able to hunt, I used to go out with my father and my uncles and other people just to call turkeys for them because it was, it was pretty much brand new in the state of New York when I started. But uh, as I started going through that, and then uh, I became the best caller in the group. So moving up in my hunting career, I mean, I shot a lot of turkeys, had, had a lot of fun. But I got to a point to where I was the best caller in my group. So I wanted to find an, uh, a way to become a better caller, to become a better hunter. So the only way that I found to do that was to get myself involved in the competitive side and call against people that were doing it a lot longer than I have, more avid in the uh the out the outdoors so that's why i joined into the uh the actual calling competition side of it to become a better caller and to understand the vocalizations of the turkeys so i can could become a better hunter and have the ability to harvest more turkeys in different locations whether they're pressured or whatnot 
Was there some there, someone in, along this way that you think that might have, that uh, reached out and helped you in this, or was it more of a you worked your tail off and 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 did your own self researching and and uh, just through trial and error? I would say in the beginning it was uh, more trial and error than anything. The uh, with the turkey calling competitions, when I got into it, everybody was pretty tight lipped. On how how to get to their level so anything you did you had to do on your own the uh i would say 2009 was my second or third year into the competitive side of it and i started to started to do well i, I was winning competitions i was uh i took uh second place in the new york state calling competitions in 2009 and i took first in the open so that really kind of changed a lot of people the way that they looked at me. So then it became a little more uh, easy to get tips and stuff like that. After 2009, I actually started uh, pro staffing with Hendershot, Hendershot Game Calls with Shane Hendershot. Phenomenal person, very, very, uh, very good, very easy to talk to. And he taught me a lot about the competitive side of turkey hunting, calling the whole nine. Yeah, that's uh, and he's also a first class guy. You're right. Shane was a super guy. Um, did you start seeing success right away, or is it something that you know came? It took time, or you, you really once you hit it. I mean, because you got quite a few titles there in the in the East Coast, Northeast. Um, what would you say it was, a, it was a long time building? Yeah, I, I was like I said, I was always good at calling turkeys. The uh, my first first time ever calling in a New York state, it was the New York state calling competition. And, uh, I went there with really no idea of what it was or what I was. Kiki run was of course, one of the calls they had on the list. And I had never, I didn't even know what the Kiki run was at that point. <laughs> so I didn't have, I didn't even have a call to do it on. So I ended up taking one of my three read calls and just ripping the, uh, the top read off of it just so I could make a high pitch whistle on it. And uh, of course, I didn't. I didn't win by any stretch, but I learned a lot. And from there forward, it was the driving force that made me want to get better. Again, I was the best caller in my group, but my group was limited to, you know, friends and family that I hunted with. All right. Going up and seeing some of these guys that were well, the one guy that was up there, he was a I think six or seven time state champion. Really knew what he was doing, and it was phenomenal to listen to. It was enjoyable to listen to. And uh, like I said, that just amplified my passion to become a better turkey caller and lo and behold i mean you call with the best people in the world you you learn a lot and would you say learning this the, you know this competition being in competition and getting better in your competition did you find that giving you more success and in, in being better out in the field absolutely i would say that uh it brought my ability to harvest turkeys i would say probably 50 to 60 percent yeah, better than I was that. before. Not only did it make me a better caller, but it made me learn what the cadences were that the turkeys were making. To be able to go out and, and make a sound that sounds just like a turkey is great, but if you don't know what the turkeys are saying or what you're trying to say to them, it makes it a little more challenging. Yeah, kind of take that. You can equate that to the waterfowl. You know, you can listen. One guy can run a call, and he thinks to himself that he sounds good or anything like that. And it's like with you. 
you can hear a guy on a diaphragm. He thinks he sounds good, but when you hear someone who's really good, there's a world of difference that uh, in the pitch and the tone. I mean, it sounds, you know, they might be doing the same rhythm and everything else, but that tone of a real turkey is what separates it. Yeah, and the, I would say another benefit to it is learning how to control it. So you're not always loud. You're able to get get to the uh, the softer side of calling. You can finesse. And especially when you get into a situation where you have, like state land, where you have people that are hunting it constantly. The birds have been yelled at by box calls and slate calls and diaphragm calls for 25 days, but you have the ability to get in there and do your very soft clucking and your purring and your your your, your low-tone, feel-good uh, confidence calls. That makes a world of difference in a high-pressure situation. How many uh, wins would you have in, in what states? State titles, I've won New York State eight times. I've won uh, Pennsylvania State. I've won Massachusetts, Maine, Vermont. Vermont, I've won three or four different times. There are state titles. As far as competition titles, I probably, between, I would say, between 30, probably 25 and 30 first place and second place wins. I've won the Alaska title a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, they got no turkeys up there. <laughs> hey, uh, you also won the state of Maine, which is interesting because uh, we just fulfilled an order with a new partner out there called LL Bean, and I believe that's where you had your contest. That you won there, wasn't it? Yes, I did. So we, uh, the wife and myself and our family, actually, we went up there and spent a few days in Maine, and uh, we at the LL Bean. They were having a, the new or the yeah the main L.L. Bean state calling competition. They held it there several times. You know, and so when we're talking competition again, and, and what there's, I know there's different class like there is in, in goose calling. So what, what kind of classes do you have in turkey calling? So the turkey calling side of it, you'll have the, uh, like a junior class, and then you will have a uh, open class, which is what I always ran in. The open class, you can run anything from, a box call, a slate call, a diaphragm call, pretty much anything that you can sound like a turkey on, you're, you're able to use in the open class. They also have a friction class, which is a friction only. But uh, mostly in all the competitions that I ever competed in, I only used diaphragm calls. So you're talking about using a diaphragm, and, you know, if you can explain to our listeners, what's your favorite cut? I've come to uh, use the bat wing over all the calls that I've used. I mean, going through competition, I started out with a split D, which is a great call, especially when the beginners, because it's a very easy call to run. Then I moved over to a combo cut. I really enjoy that. I can do almost everything on the combo cut, but then I started running a bat wing. And a bat wing cut, having both of the notches off the side on a bat wing cut allows me to manipulate from side to side with my tongue pressure so I can bring it up. I can bring that, that long nasally front end with a raspy back end. I can clear it. So I could do my, my kiki runs with a nice yelp on the back end with a high, high pitch front end. So the, uh, the bat wing to me is, is by far the best call for me. Everybody has a, a little bit of a different preference, but for me, that's the one that's uh, become my, my go-to call, whether it's on a stage or in the field. Well, we sold. I have to. I have to admit to that because 
your call is the only diaphragm that I use. It's the only one I will use because I've watched you, um, you know, it's like me tuning duck and goose calls. And when you tune those with me and trying to teach you, then it's watching you turn around and watch you, um, you know, making diaphragms that, that the precision that I would say there's one word to explain it. It's a precision that you put into it. But uh, I love, you know, we sell, we, we sell all the different cuts of the diaphragms, but I think one of our best sellers is your signature model, Jason Pollock, uh, the three reed batwing. It's um, our customers love it. I love it. And I love that. The, I think it also goes well with it is the two, two reed batwing uh, for a little bit quieter and, and a little bit more finesse. I think when birds are up closer, uh, the combo cut, I do like, I'm like you, I like the combo cut. Um, and probably I might use the combo if, you know, if I think turkeys are further out and I really just trying to get louder on it i might use the combo but i just got so to your three read batwing that it's just it's it's got that right pitch and and then if you explain to our listeners and a lot of people you know they think a diaphragm is you know they're all the same and they're not there's different types i mean it, we were blown away when we got into the and being educated by the people who do it and like yourself that the different materials and the, and the the back stretch and, and the tension and all that and every has to, has a role to play in all that. So if you could, can you kind of explain some of that? Absolutely. So when I got into the competition side of uh, calling, I started out with some calls that I bought off the shelf, and they were they were top end at that time production calls. What I call as a production call is you you going to any of your your big department stores and there's 30 of them that are all on the shelf. They're all the same cut. They're the same call, same name. What I ran into in the competition side, you get a call and I'll run a call for six months. And by the time six months is through on my practicing, the, the call becomes saturated. It, be, it becomes uh, overstretched and it doesn't maintain the same sound. So I go and get another one out of the package and go to use it. Well, that call there, whoever built the first call and whoever built the, the call that I had are, there are two different stretch rates on them. So the call doesn't sound the same. So you almost got to relearn how to use that call all over again. So in 2009, I bought my own call press and uh, started playing around with my own, building my own turkey calls. And in doing so, I, the, I mean, the first thousand calls were all calls that were thrown away. They were, they're, they got to a point to where it was almost frustrating to try to figure out how to build a turkey call that sounded good in the way that I wanted it to sound. But in doing so, once you get that recipe down, you have the ability on these uh, call presses to build everything within a thousandth of a tolerance. So my, my stretch rate to the side, which is you, you clamp the call down as you're stretching it to the side, you'll crimp the one side or the other to maintain that stretch rate. And then you'll grab the, the rear of the call and you'll pull it back to give it what they call back tension. But once you find out what back tension and side tensions work for you, then you can start recreating that call again and again and again every time. And to me, that is one of the most important things about a diaphragm call is consistency, precision and consistency. I agree 100% on that. And I know about that in tuning calls. You know, when you grab one of our legendary gear calls from, you know, I want the first one and the last one all sound the same. When you pick it up, you know, it's like a McDonald's hamburger. You know what a McDonald's hamburger is going to taste like here or in New York. It's both the same. So um, let's break this and, and kind of go down to hunting. And one of the things that, uh, and I will say for myself, when I first got into turkey hunting, 
Um, and I didn't get into turkey hunting till later years of my life because in Michigan we didn't have the turkeys in southern Michigan till later on. And then the population really grew and started growing and growing and then the popularity of hunting. But, um, you know, there's a lot of mistakes that, that, that people make. Um, what's some of the best advice? Now, let's give a scenario that you walk in, maybe you roosted the bird the night before, you know he's in there. And so when you make a plan the next day to go in, what is your plan and of how close you're going to approach that bird? And, uh, you know, I'm talking, are you going to, are you going to crowd it? Are you going to stay back? Do you, uh, once you make a set and he starts gobbling in the morning, you know, what's your scenario of trying to work that gobbler um, without spooking him and when he flies down to go off the other way, which I think that happens to 90% of the turkey hunters. Well, that's kind of a hard question. So there, there's so many different scenarios that you will walk into while turkey hunting from the beginning of season to, to the end of season, depending on what state you're hunting in. Say if you're hunting in some of the deep southern states, your seasons open up way earlier than they do up in the northern part, like in the uh, New York or Michigan area. So if I'm hunting, so I do, do a few different states that I hunt in, Kentucky being one of them. Kentucky every year, it seems like either the the foliage is coming in or it's ice on the ground. It could be either way. But for most scenarios in, in the Kentucky area, I mean, you don't have a lot of foliage and there's a lot of uh, valleys and hills and stuff where we hunt. So it, uh, it's interesting in Kentucky because a bird in Kentucky that sees you doesn't run and flies in my in most of my situations. So when we hunted in Kentucky, we always tried to give the birds a little extra room, especially if there was, they had no leaves on the trees or any ways to hide. So you always try to find a way to, uh, to get in quiet and set up. So if, if we roosted the birds the night before, we would try to see if they had hens with them, for one. And if the hens were with them, we would try to get in between the gobblers and the hens. A lot of times when you're out and you do your scouting, you'll find that the, the gobblers roost in a tree that's, Sometimes they could be several hundred yards away from the hens. Sometimes they could be within several feet of the hens. But if we could find a separation, we'd always try to get in between that. If we couldn't, if the birds are roosted right with the hens, what we would end up doing is uh, we would stay off a little bit because the last thing we want to do is buff the birds out of the tree. Once you do that, it turns into a whole different hunting situation, especially in the big timber in Kentucky. And when I'm saying Kentucky, we hunted the Daniel Boone National Forest, so it was wide open in a lot of woods. But uh, so if we had a situation to where there was a lot of hens and the gobbler was roosted with the hens, we would get in there half hour, 45 minutes before it even start breaking light. So we're in there early. We're set up. Everything's calmed back down. As soon as the the, the uh, gobblers are gobbling, the hens, we try to become the first hen that makes the noise in the morning. So I'll start out with some very soft tree elves, some uh, clucking a little bit of purring just to let the gobbler, once the gobbler gobbles to me and not the other hens, I know I have his attention. Generally, the gobblers come out of the trees prior to the hens. So if I'm in a situation where there's a bunch of hens in the trees with the gobbler, I want the gobbler gobbling to me and I'm on the ground. So when he comes out of the tree, I'm the first one that he's looking for. And in a lot of situations that works. You don't want to overcall. You don't want to blow the gobbler out of the tree or have him locate you before he ever comes out of the tree because, of course, once he knows you're there, he's going to head in the opposite direction. 
That's great. Um, so once he hits down and he starts coming in, um, are you calling like sometimes? You know, and, and I know, like you said, scenario is different. There's sometimes I I get a, a gobbler fired up. Sometimes I'll cut him off and get him more fired up. Or there's sometimes that gobbler he he calls and a lot of times uh, he'll answer he'll answer one time right away, but then he goes silent and then everybody will. The big mistake is, oh, my gosh, I lost him. I better start calling hard. And all of a sudden they look, and he's right over there at 20 yards. A lot of times they're silent because they're moving and coming in. And uh, so when you get in a scenario like that, when, you know, when he's fired up, you know he's coming and you're going to let him go. But if you got one that it, it, it gobbles and then stops, are you? what are you doing? Are you trying to get him one more time so you can locate a move? And if you, what is, and what kind of type of calling are you doing to get him to respond? So it, a lot, a lot of times if I'm, if I'm communicating back and forth with a gobbler and he's making distance on me, especially if you're hunting in a Daniel Boone national forest or some kind of state land, where there's a lot of other people, you don't want the bird gobbling too many times. Otherwise you have everybody else coming in on you. As long as that bird has gobbled to you, they have an amazing ability to pinpoint an area. So say if you have a, a gobbler that's out 200 yards from you and you yelp to him and he gobbles, I'm like you. I, I Generally, I'll get set up, get my gun up where last known, and then try to get him to gobble one more time so I know which direction he's coming from. And then I'm quiet to see what he's going to do. If uh, I would say I would def- definitely give it five or six minutes, maybe eight minutes, depending on how far he was and what kind of terrain you're hunting in, to give him the ability to close the distance. I agree with before that. Before you, you try to get aggressive and call him again. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that's the same way in waterfowl and duck hunting or goose hunting, whatever. I think people overcall too much as a thing of reading the bird. And and I think you know, you're putting all that practice together, but it's the same way in turkey hunting. You're trying to read that gobbler and I just want to get a sound because if I can't make a, you know, if I can't see him visually, then I definitely want to make it, you know, I want to know uh, by sound if he's coming, if he's, you know, if he's closing the distance. And I'm like you, I'm more air to be quiet because they have the uncanny uncanny ability like a buck deer when you're grunting and grunting over grunting from a tree to come right to the base of your tree and look up, you know, pinpointing that sound. And um, catching whatever movement and drawing the, you know, you know, it's like the waterfowl. You're not wanting to draw them to your to your spot where you're laying in the blind. And uh, I think that's where a lot of the inexperienced callers and the difference between you know successful hunters and guys who get busted a lot is that right there. And I, it all comes down to one word: patience. And um, that's one thing that I've noticed with hunting with you. I got the the pleasure we got to hunt and did a hunt one morning together, and I'll never forget that New York. Uh, hunt we did it was awesome as the you and i and megan and and uh, we hunted one spot early in the morning but that gobbler you know he wasn't we weren't sat close to him and he went out into the field went the other way but we kind of sat back and and um i'd never done much of a midday hunt before and you were talking that hey we're gonna go out and you know they're with hens we're gonna let them get the hens get back to nesting and we're gonna find a place to set up and we'll catch them coming back in and i thought well this would be interesting, you know, and went to one of your spots that you knew and kind of basically the center of the woods. And I remember we were standing there and you were kind of explaining different places you killed turkeys and all of a sudden, 
out in that field. My eyes grew real big and oh my gosh, there's one. And you had the camera and you set up uh, behind us and Megan and I uh, sat on the base of the tree. Both of us had a gun. And I remember the hens came through first. You know, we didn't, weren't there very long, 15 minutes or so, and the hens come through and they walked almost right over your lap. And then uh, behind them, here come the big old, you know, bubblehead there. Man, he was a good gobbler and he was firing up. But he came a little bit different a path, which was the wrong path because he coming straight to me. And of course, me being the gentleman, I looked over and said, Megan, do you want do you want to shoot that? Do you want to shoot him? And she goes, No, why don't you get him? I'm like, Oh yeah, baby, thank you. <laughs> and that gobbler, of course, I get in kill mode and I forget about the cameraman. And that gobbler just pokes his head over the hill. And, I mean, we were close. We were we were friends. We were personal. And I shoot <laughs> I shot that TSS, and I don't even think he moved to quiver or anything. And, Poor Jason, he didn't get the footage because I kind of, <laughs> I think I shot him a little bit too quick. <laughs> that, that was definitely an epic hunt. That was how it was supposed to happen. It I did. do remember we set up in that uh, that first chunk of woods that we set up in. The hens were with the gobbler, and we did not <clears throat> we did not get close enough. So as soon as he pitched out, he pitched out with hens. And anybody that's hunted turkeys long enough knows that if a gobbler's out in the field with five or six hens, it's an extremely difficult to try to get him to come away from the hens. So we ended up pulling up out of there. I think it was about nine o'clock in the morning that we, we got down into that lower section. It was a big ravine on one side of us and we had agricultural fields on the other. And we had probably 250, 300 yards strip of wood that went probably a half mile. So generally that time of the day, I mean, we, we will jump into the woods and we start walking down through the woods and we'll do what is my favorite kind of hunting. It's what they call cutting and running. So it's where you, you get in there and you start throwing some notes out. And generally, as you're going through, I'll start in the front side of the woods and I'll throw out a bunch of heavy cutting and some yelping just to try to get an answer. And if I don't hear anything, I will move forward 50, 60 yards, do it again. And I repeat this all the way through a woods. Well, with the situation with you, we come down through and we had a gobbler, the gobbler that you killed. He ended up, he was, when he gobbled, he had hens with them, but they had already been done through their, their breeding cycle. So I called more to the hens than I did to the gobbler. And once the hens realized that there was another hen in the area, they're just as territorial as a gobbler. So they, they broke away and they, of course, the hens come through first, like you said. They come right on by and they were looking for me and they traveled by me. And at that time in the morning, the gobbler was alone. So he was following the three hens that he had with him. But that was definitely an epic hunt. Yeah. You know what made and it? That was an epic day because then we went to another spot and we did that style hunting like you said it was megan's turn we got up there we didn't hear a gobbler till we were just moving and calling and, and like you said cutting and running and finally we got one to hit and we turned around and moved over again and then you got him to hit and i think that second time he gobbled you know he was coming so you know yours truly decided well i'm going to be the cameraman and you sat with megan and I got actually up and to the side, and what well, was great. I thought it was amazing that bird came in. He came in hot. You were with Megan sitting, and I'm filming this turkey. And I said, "This is I love this man. I should have been a cameraman. I'm I'm good at this." And bam, <laughs> she shoots that turkey. And man, I'm as proud as a peacock. I got thumbs up to you. And she, you go you go up there and bring the gobbler back. And all of a sudden you're playing the foot. And the first thing you asked me, you said, "Hey, did you have the sound on?" I go, excuse me? 
I do remember that. Yeah, we were yeah, we were. That was, that was the epic uh, vocalization of a turkey right there. Oh man, and I'll tell you what, that was a new style of filming called silent. This it was a silent hunt. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, real quick for our viewers, I hate to the end this pretty soon, but I I don't want to leave without you giving some of your best tips uh, to new to new guys, you know, and even veterans out there that your hunting tips. So I, like you were saying earlier, patience is definitely uh, pays off when you're turkey hunting. They, the people that are hunting a lot of state land, and I know state state properties nowadays with all these podcasts and these uh, people that are hunting state land and showing people how much is out there. When you get into a situation of hunting state land or any pressured area, less is more. The less calling you do, it, the more opportunity you're going to have. So if you get into a, a, an area, you can get a bird to gobble. You're further ahead doing a lot of softer calling, a lot of your feeder feeding calling, and a little bit of it. If you get in there and you want to strike them, like I said, uh, the, the heavy calling works very well for that. The other side of that is that you do fire them up to a point to where everybody else is going to hear them, they're going to set up on them. So that's one of the biggest things as far as hunting public ground is is don't overcall. The birds have already been pressured. They're experienced on people calling over and over again with the same cadences. So if you can get in there and do something different, that generally will uh, put a bird in your bag for sure. I agree with that. And I think also, like you, you mentioned, a great tip because if you're hunting state land, and the biggest thing to me, I think, of is safety. Um, you know, if you want to be that guy and there's other guys out there, you're probably going to be the guy that's going to have people two tracking coming up you know, to see when they hear you calling over there, it's just, you know, safety has always got to come first. So even though it, and it's the same way with that gobbler, he hears all this different calling. It's it got to be the more finesse. Same way hunting refuge areas with waterfowl you pick up. You know, another thing I want to mention, give credit to and reach out, Jason, that uh, you for years have done a lot of uh, hunts with the youth hunts, you know, whether in Turkey and, and I've been out there with you and your group and, and uh, did some, we did some hunts with the youth and waterfowl and stuff. Um, are you planning that again this year with the turkey? Yeah, so it, this will be year number 13 for doing our youth turkey hunt. We've uh, run a lot of kids through. We generally in our youth hunt have between, on the low side, 28 to 29 kids, on the high side, 35. So we've run, I would say, on an average, 30, 31 kids for the last 13 years through our hunt. It's, uh, it's, it's a great opportunity. I mean, a lot. we have very, very good uh, success rates. We've grown to a point now to where we have, uh, we, I think last year we gave away five guns, two lifetime hunting licenses. Everybody had two or three different door prizes. So it's, it's not only the hunt, it's the ability to show all these new hunters the ethics that are involved in turkey hunting, the, the better side. It's not all about harvesting a bird. It's about the camaraderie. It's about the, the outdoors and then actually enjoying that spring moment. Well, I remember watching one of your videos of your hunts uh, with the youth there, um, and you can refresh my memory, but you remember you sat there and you had all those uh, two-year-old gobblers out there that stood out in the field? Yes, that, I, I believe you're referring to a hunt where it was a very cold morning. The ponds were actually frozen and frost on the ground, but we set up and the, the birds hadn't split yet. So we had fall flocks of uh, gobblers and hens that came in on us, and probably one of the... Uh, I would say one of my most epic hunts ever. I think total we had a hundred to a hundred and one birds, which for New York State that's oh, for anywhere. that's really uncommon <laughs> yeah. nowadays. Yeah, and uh, we probably had 
I would say 13 to 17 long beards at different times coming into our come into our blind. So it was myself and I had two youth hunters with me. And to the left of us attached to our blind was the parents of the two kids that was with me. So we had two pop-up blinds out in the middle of this pasture field and we had all these turkeys come in and out. So it, it's hard to hunt with a youth kid to start with, especially when you get into a multiple bird situation like that. So we had probably 45 yards out in front of us, and there was a slight rise and then a dip behind it. So when the birds were coming up, you could see their tail fans. And as they would crest the hill, you, there was more birds that were behind them that were coming up. So if the, either one of the kids would have shot in several situations, they not only would have hit their gobbler, but they probably would have hit three or four hens behind them. So now I have two two youth hunters sitting in front of me. They both have uh, shooting sticks, and they, they're both very excited. We have, well, at one time, we had five toms that strutted into about 15 yards, and both of them were antsy. Their parents were antsy. They were like, shoot, you know, here's not. But my thing is, is it's, it's a great hunt, especially if you get the opportunity to harvest a bird. It's great. But if they would have shot at that point in time, they would have absolutely had, if not killed, they would have hurt several of the hens in the back, and that's not why we're there. No, but to absolutely. go to a situation like that and have the experience and have them wait, not shoot, explain to them why. And they had to watch these five toms come into shooting range, and then all five toms walked out of shooting range and over the knoll, and you couldn't see any birds at this point. So the disappointment was there. It ended up working out, both kids. So we had birds come back in. We had, I think, three or four birds come back in, and they both harvested a tom, nothing no, the birds were harmed, and it was a great time, high fives and happiness. But the ability to talk through them after that, looking at the video and showing the scenario, I think that, that that'll be ingrained in their heads for the rest of their lives, you know what I'm saying? And then hopefully they can pass that on to their friends, on to who, hopefully their kids someday. Yeah, they got to experience success, but they also experienced conservation. So, but, buddy, I appreciate you, you being with us, and uh, we got – Folks, if you want to hear some of the sound clips and everything, you can go to Legendary Gear on our site. And then some of our, a lot of our, well, all our diaphragm calls, you'll hear Jason doing the sound files and you hear uh, the quality of the calls and everything like that. And, buddy, I appreciate it. And, uh, folks, I hope you enjoyed this. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe to our uh, podcast. And always remember, hunt safe, hunt smart, and may the good Lord be your guide.